Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Critical care guidelines recommend stress ulcer prophylaxis in critically ill populations. However, its use in patients receiving steroids, dual antiplatelet therapy, or having a recent stroke is less clear. In contrast, recent literature has highlighted the importance of limiting patient exposure to proton pump inhibitors due to adverse effects associated with long-term use. Here to tell us what's up with stress ulcer prophylaxis is Mayo Clinic pharmacist, Dr. Joanne Liel, with recommendations on how to pick appropriate prophylaxis and select patient populations. As mentioned, I will be talking about stress ulcer prophylaxis today with a specific focus on three different populations. We're going to look at stress ulcer prophylaxis in patients receiving corticosteroids, dual antiplatelet therapy, or DAPT, and also patients with neurological conditions, with a special focus on our neurocritical population, which would be patients with either traumatic brain injury, central nervous system infections, intracerebral hemorrhage, uh, just to name a few. The reason that I chose these three populations is because the evidence supporting the use of stress ulcer prophylaxis in these, uh, in these patients is not as clearly defined as some of our other indications. So I thought it was pertinent for us today, um, no matter what practice setting we're in within our hospital, whether that be in the ED, the ICU, or on the general floor, that we're familiar with not only the agents we use for stress ulcer prophylaxis, but also the indications as well. Um, to emphasize that point, yesterday I ran a report and looked at just common agents that are given for stress ulcer prophylaxis and their incidence or prevalence, I should say, in the hospital. And over uh, a third of our patients currently are receiving stress ulcer prophylaxis. Now, of course, without looking into this patient population uh, that I looked at yesterday, we wouldn't be able to tell exactly what the indications were for the use of these agents. However, it just goes to show how applicable this is to all of us in any of our settings. So we use stress ulcer prophylaxis quite a bit just in our hospital, but how good are we at discontinuing it on discharge? To emphasize that point, I wanted to start us off today with a question. If you can go to pollev.com forward slash MayoRx, I'll give everyone a moment to join while I read the question. Approximately what percentage of discharge prescriptions are written each year for stress ulcer prophylaxis without an appropriate indication. We have A, 15%, B, 20%, C, 35%, and D, 68%. And we'll give everyone a moment to answer. So as those answers come in, I can tell you that C is the correct answer. Mm -hmm. Based on the literature that I reviewed in preparation for our discussion today, approximately 35% of prescriptions are inappropriately continued on discharge for stress ulcer prophylaxis. That is actually a conservative estimate. I did read a longitudinal analysis that had that estimate higher in the 60s or 70s. Um, so we can easily see why it's important for us to be good stewards of the medications that we manage and how applicable the topic is for us today. In order to frame today's discussion, we'll start off by looking at the epidemiology of both stress ulcers and stress ulcer prophylaxis. 
We'll look at the pathophysiology associated with stress ulcers. We'll define different bleeding definitions that will be important for us as we start to look at, look at and evaluate our literature. And we'll look at current guideline indication, current guideline recommendations regarding indications for stress ulcer prophylaxis. We will then move into our primary literature, looking at the incidence of GI bleeding in patients receiving corticosteroids. We'll then evaluate the literature that looked at the outcomes of stress ulcer prophylaxis in patients on DAPT therapy as well. And finally, we'll end our discussion today by looking at the outcomes of stress ulcer prophylaxis in neurological conditions with a special focus on the neurocritical population. So the physiologic state of our stomach exists in a highly acidic environment. It exists at a pH of 2. That is influenced by neurohormonal influences that stimulate hydrochloric acid production from the parietal cells. So normally any tissue in the body would simply be uh, instantly, not instantly, but easily degraded by that pH level. But the stomach has several protective mechanisms that actually prevent that from happening. The most important, uh, arguably, is going to be the mucus layer. That's formation is supported by both prostaglandins and nitric oxide. So the formation of stress ulcers is secondary to, uh, secondary to a total of three things. We have one, the pro-inflammatory state, two, splanchnic hyperperfusion, or three, impaired microcirculation. Now when we look at the pathophysiology behind our stress ulcer formation, it's easy to see why our ICU population is, is most at risk and why most of the literature that we have evaluating stress ulcer prophylaxis is evaluating this population. As you can see here, the stress ulcer formation as well is just a breakdown of that protective barrier and an um, injury to the tissue itself. Injury can occur via a few different mechanisms. It can occur due to vagal stimulation or a breakdown of the mucosal barrier. On the literature I read, there was some discussion as to what was the most important aspect of that. Um, arguably, the mucosal barrier breakdown would be the most important aspect of it, though. So the clinical relevance of stress ulcers is really secondary to their bleeding. And as we begin to look at our studies and evaluate the literature, we'll see different definitions used in each study. And you can quickly see how a study chooses to define bleeding can greatly affect the outcomes and the population that they're choosing. Bleeding exists on a continuum. The first uh, category is mucosal ulceration, which is defined as mucosal or submucosal erosions, which is incidence is 75 to 100%. Now, I should point out that the incidence listed on these slides are in reference to the ICU population alone, so that would not refer to us sitting here in the audience. Second, we have occult bleeding, which is defined as guaiac positive for blood gastric or fecal samples, which has an incidence of 15 to 50%. Then we have overt bleeding, which is hematoemesis with uh, frank blood or coffee ground findings in the nasogastric aspirate or melana at approximately 5% incidence. And then we have a de definition for clinically important bleeding. This is a definition that we largely see in our literature that evaluates these, excuse me, the incidence of GI bleeding. Um, that is defined as overt bleeding plus hemodynamic compromise. Hemodynamic compromise is defined as systolic greater than or equal to 20 millimeters of mercury change. Um, it's also defined as a, a decrease, or excuse me, an increase in the heart rate of greater than 20 beats per minute. And there are other definitions that go along with that as well, um, but those are the most common. 
So we've looked at how stress ulcers form. We've looked at the clinical relevance of, the, relevance of those secondary to bleeding. What agents do we have to combat stress ulcers? So for prophylaxis, we have two main medication classes that we use. We have proton pump inhibitors, or PPIs, and then we have histamine 2 receptor antagonists, or H2RAs. These both have the same effect. They decrease the production of hydrochloric acid and gastric acid secretion. They do it differently, though. Proton pump inhibitors irreversibly block the hydrogen ATPase pump versus our H2RAs, which block histamine receptors on parietal cells. They do have uh, different onsets of action, or similar onsets of action, I should say, excuse me. Um, proton pump inhibitors are 30 minutes to two and a half hours, and our histamine 2 receptor antagonists are 30 minutes to one hour. Where we see the real difference between these two agents is going to be in their duration of action. So, that, and that is secondary to their mechanism of action. So for proton pump inhibitors, their mechanism, their duration of action is 24 hours to seven days. And for H2RAs, they have a duration of action of four to 12 hours. Before we talk about risk factors, I thought it would be important for us all to discuss a, one of the landmark studies uh, that was first published in 1994. Um, that was by Cook and colleagues that looked at 2,252 surgical ICU patients. And the reason that they designed this study was that they chose 12 risk factors that they identified as being possibly a risk of GI bleeding. So they found that 1.5% overall in the population experience a GI bleed. And most importantly, they identified mechanical ventilation, mechanical ventilation greater than or equal to 48 hours, defined, that's the definition for respiratory failure and patients with coagulopathies, which was defined as an INR greater than 1.5, platelets less than 50,000, these patients were at an increased risk of experiencing uh, stress ulcers and GI bleeding. When we looked at just those patients that either were mechanically ventilated or had a coagulopathy, we considered those patients to be high risk. When they took those patients out, they were at a 3.7% risk overall of experiencing a GI bleed versus our low-risk category, which was everyone else, um, and they were at a 0.1% risk. So why is this important for us today? That study, along with others that looked at similar populations, established many of the guidelines that we still consider relevant 27 years later, believe it or not. All of these guidelines are really referencing the same populations, but targeting the information towards uh, who, who they choose to educate. So for ASHP, their guidelines look at coagulopathy and mechanical ventilation, as do the EAST guidelines. ASHP looks at history of GI ulceration, bleeding within one year, and they also consider sepsis, ICU stay, occult bleeding, and use of high-dose corticosteroids. EAST guidelines also consider use of high-dose corticosteroids. However, they define it as 250 milligrams of hydrocortisone or equivalent daily as being high-dose. So why this is important is because, as I mentioned in our introduction, the data behind each of these indications varies. The strength of the data varies for each of these indications. So what I've chosen to talk to you about today are those indications where the literature uh, is maybe not as clear. That brings me to my second question. So you can go to pollev.com forward slash MayoRx or text MayoRx to 22333 to join.
<clears throat> so which of these is not a guideline recommended indication for stress ulcer prophylaxis? Okay, so the correct answer is B. Um, looks like most of you got it. Hydrocortisone less than 250 milligrams or equivalent daily is not considered an, is not considered an indication for stress ulcer prophylaxis. Specifically, the guidelines call out doses of greater than 250 milligrams or equivalent daily. And we do know that mechanical, mechanical ventilation and coagulopathy were both uh, considered high risk indications for stress ulcer prophylaxis, and that was found in uh, Cook and Colleagues' article from 1994. Then major brain injury as well is called out in the guidelines. So the first patient population that I'd like for us to look at today is our patients that are receiving corticosteroids. It's important to note that when we look at this literature, most of the data is going to look at the incidence of GI bleeding versus the incidence of stress ulcer prophylaxis outcomes in this population. I've chosen to review three different studies today. These are all systematic reviews and meta-analyses. What that means for us is I am not introducing a total of 60,000 patients uh, for evaluation. This is largely the same populations looked at differently by each research group. So we will quickly see how they chose to, the inclusion and exclusion criteria they chose and the definitions they chose for their primary outcome affect their conclusions. So our first study is going to look at 33,253 patients. Everyone looked at corticosteroid versus placebo, and their primary outcome was GI bleeding or perforation. Next, we have Merrick et al. with 16,659 patients whose primary outcome was clinically overt GI bleeding. And then last, we have our uh, population of 14,615 that looked also at clinically important GI bleeding. So the first study that we look at is Naram et al. Um, they were very unique because they chose to look at patients that were both hospitalized and ambulatory. They didn't exclude any ages, so they did include our pediatric patients as well, and they had no co-medication restriction, meaning patients could be on NSAIDs, they could be on antiplatelet therapy, and that's why the population was so large. They did have a primary outcome in 2.4% or 804 patients that reported GI bleeding or perforation. When we compare that, the corticosteroid group had 2.9% versus the placebo group at 2%. They did find a statistically significant difference between GI bleeding in the corticosteroid and placebo group. They did also look at patients based on their disease severity. So they looked at hospitalized versus ambulatory patients. They had a total of 472 events pictured here on the graph versus 321 in our placebo group. That was a statistically significant difference. We could see the odds ratio is 1.42. Ambulatory patients, there was no clinical, excuse me, there was no statistically significant difference there. So we can see the confidence interval. The next study we will look at is Merrick et al. They looked at critically ill patients only. They, however, chose to exclude patients with peptic ulcer disease and patients chronically receiving steroids. That is in direct contrast to our last study, who included patients with a history of peptic ulcer disease and steroids. They noticed a primary outcome in 355 patients, which represented 2.1% of the total population. When we looked at steroid versus placebo, they did not find a statistically significant difference between the two groups. And when they looked at both low and high-dose steroids, in this case, low was defined as less than or uh, equal to, four, excuse me, less than 400. High-dose was considered greater than or equal to 400 milligrams of hydrocortisone. They found no statistically significant difference between the two groups. 
Our last systematic review and meta-analyses also included adult critically ill patients. Their primary outcome was clinically important GI bleeding. Their secondary outcome was GI bleeding of any severity. For the primary outcome, they did find a statistically significant difference between the two groups, but not in our patients with GI bleeding of any severity. They also broke their results down into subgroups. They looked at patients that were both on low and, low and high dose corticosteroids and found no statistically significant difference between the two groups. And also they looked at patients based on their use of anticoagulant or antiplatelet or NSAIDs and found no statistically significant difference between subgroups. So in summary, we've looked at a large population of patients. Our first study didn't exclude any age groups. They included both hospitalized and ambulatory patients, whereas our last two studies looked at only ICU patients. The overall GI bleeding rate that was reported in two of the studies was fairly similar at 2.4 and 2.1%. It's important to note that they did not, the exclusion criteria did not include patients on stress ulcer prophylaxis, so it's likely that patients on stress ulcer prophylaxis were included in the study and that would have driven this GI bleeding rate down. The primary outcome results, our first study concluded that there was a 40% increased risk of GI bleeding or perforation in our steroid group. The second study said there was no difference between the two groups and our last study concluded that there was a slight increase in GI bleeding risk associated with steroid use. And then finally, for subgroup analyses, our first study concluded that hospitalized patients were at a greater risk than ambulatory patients, and our last two studies said there was no difference between high and low dose steroids. So what's important for me when evaluating these studies is looking at the quality of literature that they looked at. Now, it's important to note that one of the criticisms of the first trial is that they did not publish their protocol and that they included high-risk high bias studies, and that was called out in the study by Butler and colleagues, and they actually did an analysis of the bias of the studies that were included and, and rated their evidence level as low. Um, so they said that they couldn't basically um, arrive at a definitive answer, but there was a possibility that there was a slight increase risk. Our next question will be a patient case. So NY is a 68-year-old female currently hospitalized on the medical floor for a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease exacerbation and is receiving prednisone 40 milligrams for five days. So this is our next question. Which of the following stress ulcer prophylaxis regimens would be the most appropriate to start? So you can respond at polleb.com forward slash mayorx or text mayorx to 22333 to join. Okay, so it looks like we've got some answers uh, pretty much across the board. So for me, the right answer is no, C, no prophylaxis indicated. So that's based on my takeaways from the literature that I reviewed in preparation for today. So the overall incidence of GI bleeding is low in patients that receive steroids. Um, it's considered a rare event. Uh, steroid dose, there was no differences in the incidence of GI bleeding in low versus high dose. So there was some discussion in the literature that if steroids truly induce the risk of GI bleeding or increase the risk of GI bleeding, we would see a relevant increase as we increase the steroid dose as well. My personal conclusion is that steroid use alone may not be an indication for stress ulcer prophylaxis. 
That being said, you do have to consider the patient. And if they are on any other agents that might aggravate the risk of bleeding, such as a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication or an, um, an antiplatelet drug, that would be a consideration for stress ulcer prophylaxis. That brings me to our next population, dual antiplatelet therapy. We'll look at three different trials. Our first one will be from 2010. That is um, by Bot et al., um, more famously known as a cogent trial. They looked at 3,761 patients. They evaluated the use of dual antiplatelet therapy with omeprazole versus dual antiplatelet therapy and placebo. Their primary outcome was overt or occult bleeding, symptomatic GI ulcers or erosions, obstruction or perforation. Our next study from 2016 was a randomized uh, trial as well. They looked at 3,750. Excuse me. The trial from 2016 is actually a subgroup analysis of the cogent trial. So it's not introducing a new population of 3,000 patients. It basically broke down the cogent trial by aspirin dose. They looked at both low and high dose aspirin, which low dose was defined as less than 100 and high dose was defined as greater than 100. Their primary outcome was composite upper GI events. And then finally, we have our last trial, which was a systematic review and meta-analyses from 2018 that looked at a total of 6,239 patients. And again, this is not introducing a new 6,000 patients. This is referencing some of the earlier trials, including the two that we will review. They looked at proton pump inhibitors plus DAPT versus placebo plus DAPT. And their primary outcome was overt and occult bleeding. So in the cogent trial, this was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. They looked at patients requiring dual antiplatelet therapy for greater than 12 months. Again, they had a composite GI outcome as their primary outcome. In the intervention group, which was omeprazole plus dual antiplatelet therapy, there was a 1.1% incidence versus 2.9% in our control group. They did find a statistically significant difference between the two groups with a 66% reduction in hazard ratio, uh, which was statistically significant. When they broke down that primary outcome into its composite, uh, excuse me, when they broke down the composite outcome into its components, um, they still found a statistically significant difference both in overt and gastroduodenal bleeding and overt upper GI bleeding, but no difference in occult bleeding. Next, we have our subgroup analysis of the patients from the cogent trial. So it's the same population that received dual antiplatelet therapy for greater than 12 months. They had a primary outcome looking at composite GI events, and that occurred in 1.7% of patients in the low-dose group versus 2.1 in the high-dose aspirin group. They found no statistically significant difference between the two aspirin groups. When they broke down their composite outcome into its individual components, there was no statistically significant difference across the board, whether they looked at low-dose and high-dose aspirin with PPI or low-dose and high-dose aspirin with placebo. Then finally, our systematic review and meta-analyses looked at patients who were 18 years or older undergoing PCI. Their primary outcome was GI bleeding, both overt and occult. They looked at PPI and DAPT, they had 22 events in the intervention group versus 66 in the control group only. That was a statistically significant result. Uh, next, we had gastric erosion and ulcers. They had seven in the intervention group and then 18 only in the DAPT group, which was also a statistically significant result. 
So for me, for the dual antiplatelet takeaways, uh, there is an increased risk in patients receiving dual antiplatelet therapy, and that's secondary to the mechanisms of the medications themselves. So we know that um, for aspirin, it will decrease prostaglandin production, which we know is important for that mucosal uh, barrier and the maintenance of that. And then we also have our antiplatelet agents, which would make clotting harder for patients as well. Second, we see that across aspirin doses, there was an increased risk of GI bleed uh, included in both low and high dose aspirin. My personal conclusion based on the literature that I, we evaluated today is that stress ulcer prophylaxis should be considered for patients that are receiving dual antiplatelet therapy. Our final population that we will look at today <clears throat> excuse me, is patients with neurological conditions. And again, these neurological conditions will focus mostly on the neurocritical population because that is where there is the most data. We will look at three different trials. Our first trial is a randomized control trial looking at 141 patients that received ranetidine or sucralfate versus placebo. Their primary outcome was gastric hemorrhage. Um, next, we have a study from 2013. It was also a systematic review. Excuse me, this was a random control trial. They looked at 165 patients. Their intervention was omeprazole or cimetidine versus placebo and primary outcome was upper GI bleed. And last, from 2015, we have a systematic review and meta-analyses. So again, the study size of 829 does include some of the other populations that we'll look at before. They looked at stress ulcer prophylaxis versus placebo and no prophylaxis, and the primary outcome was GI bleeding. So our first study was randomized and placebo-controlled. The population they chose to look at was CT-proven intracerebral hemorrhage within seven days of ictus. They excluded patients with a history of peptic ulcer disease, patients on antiplatelet therapy, and patients on anticoagulation therapy. Although there appears to be a statistically significant difference uh, based on the graph, there was 11.1% uh, of patients that experienced gastric hemorrhage in the renetidine group, there was 14.3% in the sucrophate group and 23.4% in the placebo group. However, the authors concluded that there was no statistically significant difference between those. This same uh, group looked at gastric hemorrhage as a subgroup, so they compared each agent individually to placebo and to each other. So they looked at ranetidine versus sucralfate, ranetidine versus placebo, and sucralfate versus placebo, and found no statistically significant difference between the groups. It's important to note that for our subgroup analyses, power was not met. Um, so the findings of this, of this portion of the trial would just be hypothesis generating. Um, we also noticed that in pneumonia, um, there appears to be a difference in the percentage of patients that had pneumonia. So Placebo was 10.6%, ranetidine was 4.4%, and sucralfate was 10.2%. But they also concluded there was no statistically significant difference in this group. Our next trial is from Lou and colleagues from uh, 2013. This was a single-center randomized placebo-controlled trial. They looked at patients 18 years of age or older with CT-proven intracerebral hemorrhage within 72 hours of ictus that required neurosurgery. They found a statistically significant difference in upper GI bleeding between uh, the groups, but no statistically significant difference when it came to nosocomial pneumonia. <coughs> so in this trial, 45.3% uh, of patients in the placebo group um, had an event, 
and in the cimetidine group it was 27.8 and omeprazole is 15.5. Then finally, our systematic review from 2015 from Lou and colleagues looked at neurocritical patients as well. Um, they mostly were represented by intracerebral patients, hemorrhage patients. Uh, the primary outcome with a relative risk of 0.31 was statistically significant between stress ulcer prophylaxis and placebo. They did also have a statistically significant reduction in mortality, but not a statistically significant reduction in nosocomial pneumonia. So in summary, we've looked at three studies today. The population has largely been, has largely been uh, patients with intracerebral hemorrhage. Even the systematic review and meta-analyses, the majority of those patients uh, were part of that same population. Primary outcome results for our first study showed no difference between stress ulcer prophylaxis and placebo, and our last two trials did show a decreased risk of GI bleeding. Subgroups across the board showed no difference in nosocomial pneumonia. However, remember that our trials are not powered to detect a difference in the nosocomial pneumonia between groups. This brings me to my last question. So we can go to pollev.com forward slash MayoRx or text MayoRx to 2233 to join. So which of the following neurocritical conditions has the most data to support the use of stress ulcer prophylaxis? All right, you guys got it. So C is the right answer. Answer. Uh, intracerebral hemorrhage is a population that's best represented in the data. So my takeaways are that there is an increased risk of GI bleeding uh, in the neurocritical population that's really thought to be secondary to an increased release of acetylcholine, which increases um, <clears throat> hydrochloric acid release in the stomach. Um, so the literature that I evaluated basically came to the conclusion that this risk is likely present in all neurocritical patients. Um, so stress ulcer prophylaxis did also decrease the incidence of GI bleeding. Um, for this reason, I concluded that stress ulcer prophylaxis should be considered for all neurocritical patients. So in summary, going back to our corticosteroids, there's low quality evidence that suggests there's a possible increase in GI bleeding uh, with steroid use. However, that difference was not shown across both high dose and low dose groups. For our dual antiplatelet therapy group, there is an increased risk of GI bleeding with DAP therapy, and that's secondary to the mechanisms of the medications themselves. And there was an increased uh, stress ulcer prophylaxis, excuse me, decreased the risk of significant GI bleeding across aspirin groups, both low and high dose. Then finally, in our neurocritical population, intracranial hemorrhage has the most data to support use of stress ulcer prophylaxis, and I think it should be considered in all neurocritical populations. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.